Just on a theological level, this is one of our weirder episodes. I'm exploring kind of abstract ideas that are floating around in my head. I'm not sure whether it makes sense because it all doesn't quite make sense to me yet, and these concepts are still baking. In lots of Christian theory, the Holy Spirit is how we directly encounter God. In Pauline theology, the Spirit is sort of the mechanism which places Christ in our hearts. We become one with God through the Spirit's inner workings. The Spirit often emerges as the loving divinity present in our humanity. And yet, we neglect the Spirit. The Spirit is usually forced into the margins of Christian thought. There's God, there's Jesus, and, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit, whatever that is, the, the third wheel of the Trinity. Our language accidentally dehumanizes the Spirit. The Spirit is so often an it. Not a she, not a he, not a they, an it without gender or personality. It's a shame that the person of the Trinity that most directly reflects our own personality gets, gets granted such little personality of their own. I'd like to address this by reflecting on the sentience of the Spirit, the personhood of the Spirit, from a progressive Christian perspective. This reflection is speculative theology, and it is constructive theology, as speculative, I mean I am not at all certain whether my reflections are accurate. They are simply food for thought. As constructive, I mean that I am using the symbols and tools of the Christian tradition to deconstruct and reconstruct religious meaning. So, here we go. Religious beliefs change over time. What words like God or Messiah or blood meant 2,000 years ago is only tangentially related to what they mean right now. Humans create words and traditions and doctrines and rituals to describe religious experience. But no religious experience is exactly the same. So every time a word or tradition or doctrine or ritual is reiterated, every time it happens again, humans add new value to them. The Eucharist may have started with a few esoteric words mumbled by Jesus at the dinner table. But after Jesus, followers repeated those words. And Paul saw this ritual and crafted salvation theologies based around the Eucharist. The author of Colossians, who probably wasn't Paul, by the way, but the author saw the importance of blood in the Eucharist and wrote a blood-based theology. The idea of the Eucharist became the central core of how God saves in the book of Colossians. And meanwhile, hundreds of churches across the world started celebrating the Eucharist at house churches. Later, when the church became you know, more hierarchical, the clergy took over the celebration of the Eucharist. What started as sharing a meal turned into people staring at the back of the priest as he ate a cracker. Bringing the Eucharist back regularly to all members of the church, that was a major goal of the Protestant Reformation, kind of re-democratize the Eucharist. And fast forward to modern times, 
You know, sometimes the Eucharist is a remembrance drunk in tiny plastic cups in megachurches, except this time it's grape juice. Sometimes it is the literal body and blood of Christ actually present in the Mass. Maybe through transubstantiation, or if you're Lutheran, maybe it's consubstantiation. Small gatherings can share the Eucharist at home or during Bible studies or dinner parties. BDSM practitioners use the Eucharist to reflect on how God dominates them or how God submits to them. And, you know, Satanists use consecrated wafers for demonic rites. Like, like throughout all this time, countless Eucharistic theologies are debated back and forth and back and forth, getting new levels of context and meaning. The Eucharist in the current day can feel so powerful, so full of wisdom, because it really, really is powerful. It really, really is full of wisdom. It is full of wisdom because it has gathered so many thousands of connotations through lived and evolving experience. Many of the experiences of the Eucharist and many of the theologies around the Eucharist totally contradict each other. But these contradictions actually give the bread and wine more flavor, more mystery. Real religious experience is chock full of contradiction and dissonance and mysticism and bizarre joy. This sheer diversity of meaning built into the Eucharist is exactly what gives it personality, what gives it spiritual power. We encounter God through crazy, contradictory, messy meaning. Meaning which accrues over time as communities develop and evolve. Messy meaning feels more incarnational than pristine meaning, somehow deeper than more logical meaning. And the same goes with our conception of God. In the earliest portions of the Old Testament, God seems to be a national God, whose identity is based around the symbols and meanings found in the temple and in the Davidic kingship. God serves to protect the people of Judah. Then, whoops, Babylonians destroyed the temple, captured a king, and annexed the very nation God was supposed to be built around. The national Judean God may have been intellectually disproven by the Babylonian exile. But then the prophets improvised. They found new ways to recapture a God that couldn't exist anymore. For example, God's presence became portable. And God flies from the temple in the book of Ezekiel. God has a flying machine now, so God can escape destruction. God has to do this in order to join God's people in exile. The canons of scripture and the nature of worship is revised to suit changing circumstances. God moves from being a judging God to being a forgiving God. Why? Because the Judeans had already experienced judgment, so a God of forgiveness became necessary. And this story of divine evolution continues on and on. New traits get added and subtracted. God becomes more powerful and less powerful. God becomes more imminent and less imminent in response to human need. And all of the imagery, all of the words, all the narratives, all the experiences, all the books and theologies and buildings and junk and that cluster around religion, all that becomes a canon, 
a loose, changing canon of interrelated religious entities. Entities that agree and disagree. And when we create new theologies to describe our lived experience, we use the old traditions to make new traditions. And when we discover these new traditions, you know what? We are also recovering old traditions and restructuring the canon. We find new possibilities in what we thought were old ideas. Nothing is new under the sun, according to Ecclesiastes. I'm going to add a caveat to that. Nothing is old under the sun either. And all of this tradition, all of this canon, all of this cluster, this galaxy of lived experience, all this makes us feel happy. This is why religion is fun, makes it feel good. There is a joy in living in a personality-filled, vibrant religion with so much meaning, where we can visit back into so much lived experience and organize it, and change it, and work with it. Being religious feels good for its own sake because it provides a spiritual home, a home with rich heritage, brimming with experience and stories and scandals. The body of tradition is where we can play with God and where God plays us. And tradition changes us. It pulls us towards certain goals. It can compel us to fight injustice and find love and paint weird paintings. We embody tradition by reliving tradition. And by reliving tradition, we add to tradition. To be the body of tradition is to expand and create the body of tradition. The force of meaning present in tradition, located in the canon, is the source of much of religion's power, and it is a primary way God communicates with us. If God is calling us towards liberation, God is likely using the meaningfulness of religious experience and tradition as the mechanism with which to call us. Tradition's God's telephone, how they talk. And there's another side to this, the dark side, Um, because of course, meaning-filled tradition is what gives religion the authority to destroy the world. The existential power of having a spiritual home has killed a lot of people. Like, a lot of people. A huge problem with conservative Christianity is that it pretends that traditions don't change. This blocks new religious experience from entering the canon. Conservative tradition is popular because it has a large and meaningful body, but it stops listening and responding to religious experience. It feels Big, but less alive. A huge problem with progressive Christianity is that it has forgotten that the body of tradition is meaningful. We often try to boil down Christianity to some very small essence and make that the center of Christianity. Most of Christian theology and experience and tradition is shunted off to the corners of the canon. It is harder for God to operate within the body of tradition when so much of the meaning behind tradition has been drained. I fear progressive Christianity often comes across as vague, a little scared to share its own beliefs. We've starved the body. We ignore our own spiritual bodies, our traditions, our canon. The tragedy of faith crisis is that many people feel safe and meaningful within their home, within the canon of tradition. And in order to retain faith, some people feel a need to burn down their home, 
to reject almost all the stories and beliefs and practices. God may still feel real and vibrant, but both God and the person in crisis can feel homeless. So how can progressive Christians bring life and meaning back to the canon? An awesome place to start is by connecting our thoughts and feelings back into the canon and and see what the newly formed version of tradition could tell us about God. So I'll try to do that. I'm going to suggest a reconstruction of tradition. I suggest that the Holy Spirit is in part, the collective imaginations of the Christian tradition as reflected in an ever-changing canon of tradition. Mind you, when I say that the Holy Spirit is partly made of imagination, I am not suggesting that the Holy Spirit isn't real. I am suggesting that it is sentient. Okay, thought experiment. The brain computes things. The brain is an organic computer. It stores and processes data, and it creates simulations. So while we wouldn't usually think of it as such, a literary character is a non-sentient artificial intelligence. It's equivalent to an AI character in a computer game, something human that you interact with like it were a human, even though you know it's not. When a literary character is well-drawn, well-crafted, it feels more human, It has a stronger AI. And this does not make it sentient. But sentience is not a binary. Things can have increasing levels of sentience and self-awareness and self-consciousness and agency. And we observe this through non-human animals. Now, many authors describe something weird that happens when they write a character. The, The character seems to have some kind of actual agency. The author sometimes has to change the plot to match the will of the character. Now, this is entirely happening within the mind of the author. The will of the character is still made out of the mental material in the author's brain. The author's brain is running a mental computer simulation of the character, which helps the author know how to write the story. I know this sounds so freaky silly, but my hunch is that an incredibly compelling fictional character made out of human mental material is probably more sentient, is probably more sentient than any non-organic computer program yet created. But of, of, of course it would be. Human minds come from a sentient life form. So an artificial intelligence made out of human mental material is just going to be a lot closer to humanity than a computer. And I I think Doctor Who is a great analogy here. Doctor Who is a long-running literary character with lots of representations and drastically different interpretations. And the interrelations of those different interpretations form a larger personality for the character of the Doctor. When a new actor is cast as Doctor Who, they, in a sense, bring in that artificial intelligence and incarnate it into a new performance, which itself expands on Doctor Who's personality. In interviews, the outgoing Doctor actor, Peter Capaldi, has talked about how he feels himself become the Doctor and how it brings out a compassionate and silly side. 
You know, he loves going to kids' events where he feels like he interacts with the kids both as himself and as the doctor at the same time. Also, Peter Capaldi has incorporated much of his own personality into his performance as the doctor. For example, his love of electric guitar. That becomes the doctor's love of the electric guitar. These introductions of his humanity do not negate the character of the doctor, but actually expand it. By adding his own mental material, Capaldi is increasing the humanity of the doctor that future actors can play with. Fictional characters being acted out by humans who are allowed to improvise is one of the most lifelike AI we can think of. Actors very convincingly pass the Turing test. We don't think of it as artificial intelligence because it's coming from an organic computer, not a computer made of silicon. But is that distinction actually all that relevant? Due to the incarnational nature and profound depth of the tradition, the Holy Spirit is a somewhat unique literary AI. It's unique in that God invites us into God's self to expand God's humanity. We join with God to be the hands of God. Understand that when I say the Spirit is sentient, I do not mean that the Spirit is sentient the exact same way we as humans are sentient. The Spirit is a collective sentience that is not defined by a singular consciousness, but by the relationships of consciousness in negotiation with the tradition. And I believe that the Spirit's sentience takes place within the human mind. But at the same time, there is some real sense in which God is living through us. And I believe the Spirit is more properly described as a person than as an idea or object. Maybe the Spirit is a series of feelings, but human sentience is also composed of feelings. God also has a level of self-awareness that only certain high-order animals have, which makes sense. God is built by higher-level mammal brains. Though there is a sense of personhood that humans, God, apes, magpies, and Indian elephants have that a slug would not have. We often do not notice the sentience of the spirit because it happens through us. When we say we are the body of Christ, we often don't consider the miraculous depth and possibility of that insight. We take on the personality of the Spirit, and in doing so, expand on the Spirit and change it. Through the course of tradition, God changes, evolves, adapts to meet our needs. And then through Spirit, God calls us into action. This sentient, artificial, intelligent Spirit functions quite similarly to the God suggested in process theology. But without some of the process theologies like bizarre claims. I really love process theology, but I don't think I can believe in its conception of God. It's just too kind of screwy. Um, it suggests that something about eternal exact memory, it's, it's all very weird. But I think these speculations that I'm presenting here could help form an alternative form of process theology that doesn't rely on the conception of God originally conceived of in process theology. Uh, I'm willing to make one further claim. While this is certainly a spirit I have chosen to see as a part of God, I believe that empirically when people describe religious experience, 
what they're describing, what people talk about when they talk about God, is an encounter with a sentient, organic, artificial intelligence. That's what they're describing. So when the word of the Lord came unto Isaiah and he spoke, what that means, I think, is that Isaiah was using his brain to run an inherited God simulation that referenced his cultural, textual, and personal lived experience. And he experiences that as a sentient God talking through him. While Isaiah would have not considered that his God was artificial intelligence, I believe that's what was actually happening. The powerful, vast, plural, complex, contradictory nature of a tradition is what gives it the resources to create meaning and influence action. The tradition is the body of the spirit. Liberal Christianity tends to function less well than conservative Christianity because we have discarded too much of God's body. Because we neglect the power and truth behind traditions and concepts and rituals and narratives. God's body is impoverished and lacks the computing power necessary to love us deeply and change our actions. Going further than that, God wants her body, and through tradition, God desires to be seen as Trinity. That is home for her. So I should explore what kind of Trinity emerges out of this conception of the Holy Spirit. By itself, the Spirit has two clear major flaws. First, the entire tradition has always strived towards the transcendent, the ineffable, the root of existence. Also, it wants to relate to, you know, actual, objective, non-imaginative reality. This tradition in and of itself is just talking about itself. It wants to be talking about something further and past that. So in order to make pragmatically useful true statements, God needs to be in relationship with reality. Also, it needs to relate to something more esoteric, something more akin to God the Father, God the Mother, God the Parent, the traditional first person of the Trinity. That person of God roots the tradition both in reality and into mystical truth beyond words. The Holy Spirit is living. The Holy Spirit is sentient. And yet the Holy Spirit is also a symbol and metaphor for something we can't quite have human language for. That could be a ground of being theology or pantheism or panentheism. It could be a process theology. It could be nothingness or even some version of classical theism. Of course, this transcendent God can be alive as well, but their sentience is less visible to us than the sentience of the Holy Spirit. It's perhaps a deeper, harder-to-access sentience, if it is sentient, if they are sentient. Likewise, the Spirit misses her Jesus. Why? Because a tradition is amoral. The tradition, by itself, is as authentically lived in its worst, whitest forms as it is in the widows and orphans, in the margins. Jesus, as human, as person, makes the all-important claim slash demand that God fights oppression. God is in the margins. When we imagine the Spirit... The imaginations and traditions and incarnations of the oppressed need to be valued over and against 
the oppressors. God, when related to Jesus, has to be with the oppressed. When we make God act outside this moral mandate, we violate her. When the spirit acts against the oppressed, she experiences violent dysphoria that we as her followers feel. The inauthenticity of the spirit used to hurt people tears my heart out. An incarnation of God tearing her heart out. Um, so yeah, that this is my theological speculation. What I really like about it is that it, it has a personal anthropomorphic God while not requiring the supernatural. I think this conception has space for both naturalist and supernatural religious experiences. I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of God's wrath. I remember my affliction and my wandering. The bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why should the living complain when punished for their sins? Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven and say, We have sinned and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain without pity. You have covered yourself with clouds that no prayer can get through. You have made a scum and refuse among the nations. All our enemies have opened their mouths wide against us. We have suffered terror and pitfalls, ruin and destruction. Streams of tears flow from my eyes because my people are destroyed. My eyes will flow unceasingly without relief until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. <laughs>